0: Glad to be here. Hey, good morning. Good morning, good morning. It is good to be together. And uh, as Beth mentioned, I have been, our family has been a part of the church uh, really since we moved to the Boulder area about eight years ago now. Uh, In September of 2014, you guys had left the Omni and started meeting in this physical room, and so we used to kind of traipse at varying levels of untimeliness, not so great, but um, up to the front area, and now we're sort of in the back dwellers. Shout out to the back dwellers, that's us. Um, And I decided to spiff up a little bit more. Often you'll see me in my uh, going-to-the-gym clothes. So uh, anyway, you probably wouldn't have cared one way or the other. But I wanted to start out and just say, hey, turn to the person next to you or somebody nearby. How long have you been connected to Ascent? It wasn't that long a conversation, was it? <laughs> All right, so how many people, raise your hand, how many people have been here like eight years or longer? Hold them up high. Everybody, like, look at the people who have been part of carrying this community for a very long time. Great, thanks. All right, how many people have been here one year or less? Hands up. Online, I don't know how you do with the hands up, but very exciting, very exciting. A church in a community that has as much in and out and transient people coming in for jobs and out. There's always an influx and an outflow. But gosh, to those of you who've been here longer than me, thank you. This is a beautiful place and a lot of great things have happened here. And for those of you who are new, I really would encourage you to take Beth or even more new-ish, um, take Beth up on that challenge to find ways to get connected. That is what it's about. And I had written in my notes that it was six years, but you're right, it was seven years. Because of the pandemic, I stayed an extra year. Uh, I did serve on a SENSE leadership team, um, who are people who are volunteers uh, through the church, many of whom, I'm not gonna have them raise their hands right now, but are in the room right now, the ones who are currently serving in that way to provide encouragement, direction, feedback, and structural governance uh, to support the pastors and this entire effort. Lots of fun times, as you can imagine, and some challenges over the last few years in particular. And I do a lot of work outside of here, um, that is with churches all over the country and in some places around the world. And as you know, churches have struggled in the last little bit to respond to the pandemic, to political divisions, all kinds of painful race relationship things, departures and arrivals of staff. That has happened all over the place and here. And I could not be more proud just to say a few words, if I could, about how Ascent has uniquely navigated some really hard things. In my view, Ascent stayed alert and responsive to the needs of the community. We didn't turn inward. We stayed outward. We stayed focused on the way of life of Jesus and the kingdom of God. and had to, there, we, we stayed true to those topics amidst a lot of, a lot of noise in our culture. Ascent remained faithful and even generous financially. When we entered, and frankly, we still remain in an economy with a lot of uncertainties, we stayed saying, we're in, we're here, we're generous, we care about what God is doing through this place. Ascent continued to contend for the centrality of our shared life with God as the main thrust of the church, asking and answering the question, what does it mean for us to be the people of God in a local context? meaningfully connected to each other. And we, connect, we continue to ask and answer that question as each and every one of you stay alive to God, stay connected to others in your environment, and bring your authentic self and your relationship with God into your environment, your neighborhood, your schools, your work, and yes, when we're occasionally together under this roof. We continued to gather, sometimes virtually, sometimes in person, in ways that both we think honored God and the broader needs of our community. And we gathered to worship together for the God we love and who, are, who we're learning from. And we continued to learn through scripture and revealed the word of God as a source of strength and truth and life for us. We have been the church. So I just want to say thank you I haven't met each of you, but yeah, we've been through a lot together. And to continue to pray, not only for the staff, also for the leaders, for those who serve in every capacity around this place. And as we each, whatever your role is, we show up as Jesus' people in our lives, and it matters that we do. All right. so another thing to know about me, especially as we head in today's topic, is that I'm a a wife, as you've heard, of my husband Jeff now for 35 years this summer, yes. How am I even, I thought, I I didn't even know I was still 35 years old, but here I am married for 35 years, and then we have three sons, and this is a crazy recent picture, um, three sons, so the hand in the air, he's the middle, the guy to his... his right, but our left is the oldest, Jeff and Josh. Some of you guys know some of them from our community. And down, so there's me on the far that side, and then the three girls. All right, so I have three sons. I'm the oldest of seven kids. I had five younger brothers. My husband, Jeff, is one of three boys. I've lived in a boy's world my whole entire life, and now I have girls. These are my girls. Can you see my girls? Aren't they amazing? All right, so the next slide shows a picture of just the kids and the girls. See the girls? So drop your eyesight down to the shorter ones. Those are the girls. Those are my girls. I have girls, (laughs) y'all. We get to, like, they, they notice my hair. They talk about all kinds of things. We have a lovely relationship with these girls. I love it. I love being a mom of my boys, of course, and of these girls. So, as a community, we've been exploring these women of uh, the Old Testament, women, and and focused on this idea of her story. Do we know the stories of the women of Scripture? And so they said, you know, hey, Mindy, we'd love you to teach, and you can pick anybody you want to teach from in the Old Testament. And I was like, well, that's kind of a big open window. Who would I want to focus on? Who is the most famous mother-in-law in the Old Testament? Does anybody know? Naomi, Naomi. So I get to enter in and speak. I was naturally drawn to Naomi. So there's so many people to pick from, but I thought it'd be kind of interesting to do a quick sort of review, timeline review, of some of the significant women in the Old Testament, because it was hard to choose. So we're gonna go all the way from Eve, the first woman in the Old Testament, to Esther, and I'm not gonna mention everybody. And this is really rapid fire, but I wanted to give us a sense of who are some of these epic women whose stories really matter. Of course, the men's stories matter too, but everybody, every, every one of us, every one of these characters in Scripture, these people, real people who lived real lives, their stories matter. So we start with Eve, and then who was the next woman? Well, then Abraham was called, and his wife was Sarah. After Sarah, Abraham and Sarah had Isaac. Oh, wait, we forgot about Hagar. All right, so Sarah and Hagar, her, her slave servant, became the mistress because Abraham had this promise that God would give them a heritage or an inheritance of children, and they didn't have any. And so the solution was to give, you know, as we've heard in other messages, her servant. Hagar, interesting woman, beautiful, go study this if you don't know her, named God because of her, dear, her deep pain ran away, fear of her life, feeling suicidal and concerned for her son, and names God the God who sees me, God who meets her. So Sarah, Hagar, uh, who's next? Rebecca, Isaac's wife. Then we have what we learned about Rachel. It was actually Leah became first before Rachel, but I didn't put that right in my slide, so sorry. But we already learned about Leah. This. Do you remember that message? Wasn't that fabulous? We learned about her. And then who else? We have then, oh, Tamar 1, because there's a Tamar 2 coming. So Tamar was part of the lineage of Jesus. And then we have, does anybody, I don't, Jehobed, Jacobed? Does anybody know who that is? That is Moses, Aaron, and Miriam's mom. She was a powerhouse, that woman powerhouse okay so after her we had Rahab who we learned about last week thank you Miss Lauren we have Deborah who we also learned about a couple weeks ago the one of the judges so this is moving from the time of the patriarchs into the season of the judges Manoah's wife she doesn't even have a name but she was Samson's mother another one of the judges very interesting story definitely recommend you go look then there's Naomi then there is Ruth Her daughter-in-law. Then there's Hannah, who was the mother of Samuel, who became the one who anointed the kings. Then you have David's, one of David's wife, Abigail, who is known as the interrupter of justice, or interrupter of violence. Really cool story that you can learn about Abigail. And then you have Tamar too, (laughs) who shows up also with some significant things. I believe she was one of David's son's wives. And then you have Bathsheba, gets a bad rap, but a very interesting story. Very interesting story. Was she really seducing or was she a victim of some terrible sexual and power abuse? And then we have Esther. Esther, the one who becomes queen. This now, we're talking like four to 500 years before the time of Jesus. When you get to Esther, the whole nation is in exile. I think I have that right. Anyway, it's the time of the prophets, lots of terrible things have happened, and she redeems the community of God's people. So I told you I picked Naomi, because you can see where she is in the history, because I think she has a very interesting story, and we are gonna learn more about her. a couple things I think we have in common with Naomi or at least I do I said mentioned she has a mother or she is a mother-in-law and a big factor of the story that unfolds in the book of Ruth is about her relationship with her daughter-in-law but another thing that's true about Naomi is we enter her story in the first few verses of the book of Ruth and <laughs> everything falls apart everything falls apart this is something in a very sudden time of loss that our community can relate to. We have experienced a sudden devastating tragedy that can have us, leave us, asking questions about God's goodness. We've been singing about that, but asking questions about God's goodness and his power and his love. Our home was not burned, but our neighborhood was greatly damaged. and. I think the first six months—it's taken me a long time to get my head on straight, figure out how I was feeling, what was going on—and uh, for those who have lost their homes, like Bill and Jackie and so many others, it just is just a hard season. And you rally, and you move, and you make decisions, and you get things done. And by about four, five, six months in, I—I I was cleaning out of our Airbnb while we moved to someplace else and i saw the key to one of the structures that had that had burned on on a property in boulder and I, it, it had been sitting there for months the key had been there i'd seen it every time i walked into this airbnb's closet and i picked it up to finally be packing it up and something about holding that key i all of a sudden just lost it just lost it and all the time since these fires every bit of hardship i had never really wept i had never and My friends and family, that's not a big shocker. I'm not always the most emotionally sensitive person uh, to my own inner world. And I just lost it. It was the ugliest cry I've had in a long time. I just sat down and bawled my eyes out. Many of us have been in that. Whether it's unrelated to the fires and it's something else going on in your life, um, we know how that is. So this morning we're going to explore the life of Naomi as recorded in the book of Ruth. Ruth. And I, wanted, I do want to give a little bit of a disclaimer on this because sometimes when people know the story of Naomi and Ruth, it can, start at, it can get slanted or portrayed as some sort of little Disney Cinderella story um, in which Naomi gets cast as this very negative and bitter person. And I believe those are both distortions. So it'll be good to immerse ourselves in actually her story, in what was going on. Um, so if you could, let's just pause a minute and pray together. God, um, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for scripture that uh, jumps out at us and invites us to remember that you are always at work, even in the times we don't see. Thank you for the stories of all of those amazing women and men throughout scripture who invite us to see ourselves and our lives and our circumstances within your bigger story. God, as we, as we spend these moments together, uh, would you whisper to the hearts of each person here, what is the word you want to speak to them? Help them, open them up, open all of us up. We say, God, have your way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, as we enter, re-enter this ancient world, we're gonna move into ancient Israel, into Moab, which is one of the surrounding uh, countries, and, and really explore what happens. Just for context, this book of Ruth is only four chapters long. It's not very long. And it tells this story of how Naomi and Ruth return from Moab to Israel. The location of the book of Ruth is right after the book of Judges. Do you remember we heard a little bit about the book of Judges where there's this cycle of like they returned to the Lord and then they left and then they, things got bad and then they cried out for help and then they returned to the Lord. And it's a, almost a depressing book because it just keeps getting, the cycle keeps getting shorter and shorter and shorter before people are moving away from God. And then eventually after this time of the Judges, we're going to move into a time where there is a king who gets anointed and the people have a, a monarchy now, and the king is the one who's leading, and king, king Saul is the first, but then David is the one who really is that man after God's own heart, the one who is anointed, both of them have been anointed by the prophet Samuel. So what's gonna happen is we have this book of Judges where the spiral's happening, and then you have this interlude of a tiny little book of Ruth, only four chapters. I think it's like 85 verses, so imagine like 85 sentences. It would take you like the length of time to read a, an article on Medium. That's what the book of Ruth is. But what's so different about it is that it shows this story of a transition between the time of the judges to the time of Samuel, which is gonna set up the monarchy, which is key to Israel's history. So anyway, that's maybe not the most inspiring thing. That was your little uh, lesson, Old Testament lesson for the day. So, uh, but what's interesting as well about this book is that it also raises really important questions like these, where do I turn? in times of pain and grief? In what ways can I give voice to my authentic anguish? What bold moves might my circumstances warrant? What might looking out for the needs of the next generation mean for me? And what people and situations around me could I be speaking blessing into? And interestingly, this entire book Um, really only has one reference to God speaking or doing a thing. Everyone in the story has a very high view and a strongly held view of God's involvement in human affairs, but there's no reference to God speaking or guiding or reassuring. God is quite silent though their faith is quite strong. So we'll see more about that as we go. So at a high level we've seen the historical context Um, And my hope for you is that you would come to respect this woman, that you would have a twinkle in your eyes, you're like, huh, who is that? And that you would find yourself, in yourself, the same kind of boldness and courage to move ahead in times of hardship, with confidence that God is always at work, even at times of great suffering, when you can't hear or feel his presence. So I think we're going to dive into uh, the first part of the book of Ruth. So... In the days when the judges ruled, so we know what that was, there was a famine in the land, which was often a way that people would start crying out to God because they were suffering. So there was a famine in the land. so, smart guy, man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. So they become basically refugees. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife, her name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. So quickly, we're just going to point out that this little family was not on a little vacation to go somewhere else that they thought was cool. They're basically refugees from a famine, which we know from Judges, again, was a thing. Now. The first major plot twist comes in the next few verses. So, well, the first plot is they leave their homeland and they go to find where they can live because they need food to live. And now we know that Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. So she and her husband and these two boys have traipsed down to a completely different land where they are foreigners, who knows if they could speak a language, how does commerce work, do they plant more food, who knows how they got by. But the husband dies, and she is left with her two sons. They, living now in Moab, married two women from that culture, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. So let's remember, Naomi is still probably a property owner back in Bethlehem, her husband's property, but she would have had access to it. But in Moab, she has lost her security and her standing in society, except for her sons. They are her next line of provision. So now those sons are married, and she has, she has life. She is secure. She's going to be okay. That also means because of the daughters, they will have children, which would allow, hopefully, sons to carry on the family name and the inheritance of that land back in Bethlehem. So she became a mother-in-law, which I assume uh, brought her some comfort in the midst of her grief. But then there's another plot twist. Again, we're still within the first five verses of this book. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malan and Killian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now remember, we're still, again, in the first five verses of this book. And maybe it reminds us how like, in such an accelerated way, the first five days of this past year, it, it, there's, an, there's a urgent, uh, very, very traumatizing opening. And it also might remind you, if you're familiar with it, the opening of the book of Job. The opening of the book of Job, except in this case, because in the bo- first you know, chapters of Job, Job loses family, loses, loses his wealth, loses everything. In this case, Naomi is an immigrant far from home, and worse yet, she's a woman with no social standing or means of providing for herself or her daughter's-in-law. And again, ask this question, what do we do when our world gets tragically upended? Where do we go? In spite of her grief, what's interesting is Naomi gets moving. She learns that the famine back in their homeland has ended, So she decides to head back to her people and her land, which seems like a wise decision. And along the way, though those daughters-in-law are incredibly loyal to her, she begs them to return to their family of origin, since they will have much better options and prospects of a future if they do not return with her. At least there in Moab, they belong. In Israel, things will be reversed. They will be the immigrants. They will be the foreigners. She believes she's acting, Naomi believes she's acting in their best interest, and Orpah finally agrees and says she will go. And there's tears and sadness, but she agrees to go. But Ruth refuses. We think, and rightly so, of her great loyalty to Naomi and to God in this famous passage just often read at weddings and other places where, you know, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Ruth refuses, (laughs) begs Naomi to let her continue, which is great. I think all of that is great. Her loyalty is impressive. And also, I start wondering what else might have been going on? What is her backstory? This is totally conjecture on my part, but Might Ruth have effectively severed ties with her family of origin in order to marry an Israelite young man? What if she had encountered enough of faith in this living God to throw herself and her future fully on with Naomi and Naomi's God? Did her family disown her? Would it have been worse for her to stay than to go? Whatever the reason, we might have understood if she too felt ignored or betrayed by that god of her, her in-laws. But for whatever reason, she goes. She makes a bold commitment and returns with Naomi. One other point to add here, after 10 years of being married, neither of these daughters-in-law had had any children. So on top of all the additional pain, a woman's key sort of contribution into the ancient world was their ability to their children. And she had failed. Both these daughter-in-law's had failed. So there's many layers of grief, all of that coming to the fore. So devastated by grief, likely financially destitute, these widows set off to return to their community, to the land of their Naomi's God, and to Israel. So verse uh, 19 of chapter one, these two women went until they went to Bethlehem. So I thought it'd be fun to pull out a couple maps and see like, what does this journey look like? Where, Where is Moab relative to Israel? So I don't really have a pointer here, but see the purple kingdom of Moab, right? That's basically modern day Jordan. And uh, it, the, the body of water there is the Dead Sea. So up above the small circle blue next to the green is the Sea of Galilee, which much of Jesus' ministry centered around that. Now you have the Dead Sea and the kingdom of Moab there with the ancient city of Devon or whatever. And then you see up above that is Jericho. We, Rahab was in Jericho, right? and then Jerusalem, and then Bethlehem is just a little bit south of Jerusalem. So that is the ancient world, shows Moab relative to Israel, the kingdom of Israel. And now the next slide shows a, a modern, like this is Google Maps. <laughs> I just went in and said, all right, let's, we still see that ancient city of Divan, whatever the northernmost part of Moab. And then you can see a walk of 124 kilometers from there to Bethlehem. And I think the next slide zooms it in a little bit farther. It's not, you know, hundreds of miles. It's about a 70 mile trip. It'd be kind of like if we took off from this building right now and walked on foot to Silverthorne. <laughs> it's about that long. Went through the, the canyon in Route 6, take 93 down the mountains. Not a walking journey that most of us would choose. Might have a three to five day walk. We also don't know the circumstances surrounding their travel. Could have been, you know, that based on ages of when people got married in that culture, Ruth may have been as young as like 24 years old. Naomi may have been under 40. And they are traveling either with an entire household or like with two women just on their own. There's really nothing that says any of that. But what we learn is that when they finally get to Bethlehem, the community has a response. This is what they have to say. When they arrived there, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? And Naomi responds by saying, don't call me Naomi, meaning pleasant. She tells them, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full. But the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Naomi, like Job, and like the psalmist in Psalm 88, vocalizes her grief, saying that she even feels that God is the one who has brought this tragedy on her. Now, I'm not saying that's what happened, but that's what grief sounds like. That's what grief feels like. That's where Naomi gets a bit of a bad rap. But Her name never actually changes in the book to bitter. She's still Naomi through the whole book. Her words are not that different than those recorded by Job in Job chapter three. Here's just the end of chapter three, although there's many, many chapters of Job giving voice to his anguish. In one part of it, he says, why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? So he's kind of assigning blame to God a little bit. For sighing may become my daily food has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. Psalm 88, uh, I I would never have even believed this is in the Bible if somebody hadn't pointed it out to me. many years ago. Because usually we think of the Psalms that talk about how great God is and how fabulous he is and all these things. And they, even if they say my soul is in anguish and this is hard and this is hard, but it'll turn a corner at the end and say, yet I will praise him. This is Psalm 88. You ready? Get inspired. Lord, you are the God who saves me day and night. I cry out to you. Right there. That's the high point of this Psalm. It's going down. May my prayer come before you, turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You put me in the lowest pit. He's like now turning it on God. You put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. We can stop in terms of the rest. We have the rest of the slides. I'm happy to share it with you. It's dark. It's dark. The last uh, phrase actually repeats what I just read, where it says, the darkness has become my closest friend. And like that's the end of Psalm 88. You might be like, well, thanks for that word of joy, Mindy. Glad to be, so glad I came here this morning. Um, I have learned a lot by spending some time in Psalm 88. There are seasons in which our pain is so acute. When a medical diagnosis comes in, when a family relationship goes sideways and we just don't see a way out, when our business dealings feel hopeless... Like, I, I, at times I would say, why is Psalm 88 even in the Bible? What, what is God trying to say? And I think the important thing here is that we learn that our God receives the full spectrum of human emotion. God welcomes our authenticity. That's what grief feels like. That's what grief sounds like. What I... And and the reason I wanted to share it is sometimes Psalm 88 can actually comfort us in a way when we are ourselves in a place of pain and sadness. Perhaps you can relate. Maybe you have begun wondering, did God cause these hard things to happen? I don't believe that's the God we serve, but I believe that is often a human response to what it feels like when things get hard. So I ask again, what do we do? Where do we go when it feels like that? In addition to putting voice and words to it, to her pain, Naomi's choice was to return to community, to return to the place of her God, and this is something we can learn from. Even if she couldn't feel God's presence, if she didn't get a word telling her to now, you know, Naomi, set thy path toward Bethlehem, like she didn't get any of that, at least as far as we know. The fact that she took such bold action and didn't just stay stuck where things were hard, didn't stay stuck in her circumstances impresses me. Many of us, when we're in pain, we isolate. Naomi returned to community. So how about you? Where do you go when it feels like life falls apart? When grief has you asking or maybe assuming that God has caused pain, where do you go? Or do you tend to get stuck? Naomi's story reveals some key truths. God is still present, if silent. God is still able to make a way, though it may not be clear just yet. God's purposes are never thwarted, nor is it true that we are doomed that this will always be that way, that we'll always feel that pain. There's another part of the end of chapter one that sort of sets a plot point for the rest of the book, and I won't go into the details now. But we learn that at the time that Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem, it's the season, the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, I'm not going to tell you all the rest of what happens in Ruth. You're going to have to go read that on your own. But some pretty crazy things go down. When they return to Bethlehem and Ruth begins gleaning in the fields of a, a farmer who's Family relationship is with Naomi's former husband. And that turns out to be a chance encounter that brings provision and restores wholeness to this family. In the middle of it, Ruth, uh, Naomi, once again puts Ruth up to a very bold action. And again, I'm not going to go into the details, but it's a little, it's pretty radical then and now, how she coaches her daughter-in-law to make an appeal to this family member for his protection and ultimate care. And that changed the course of history. And then this is how the book ends. Let's go look at what happened. So Boaz is the name of that farmer. Boaz goes through the legal system to actually acquire the land that was Naomi's husband's land and thus Ruth as his wife. He announced to the elders of all the people, hey, today you're witness that I have bought from Naomi all the property of those three men. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, her widow, or his Malon's widow as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. And so his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then all the elders and the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord, watch this language, may the Lord... Make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who we've already learned about, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in this city, in this tribe, and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. We also learned about that. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive. This is the one and only time God's action shows up in this story in the text. The Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Now this is the clincher at the very end. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women there said, Naomi has a son, and they called him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. Do you see how this chance encounter in the fields outside Bethlehem, set up the genealogy that would become David, King David's line and ultimately the birth of Jesus. Like the end of Job's story, Naomi's joy is restored through the events of this small book. One thing I've learned in the painful places of my life, and I hope is true for you as well, is that God meets us and holds us in very painful places. I've learned over these many years to take care of my own soul that allows me to stay connected, stay rooted, stay grounded despite the circumstances. And I'm here to report, there is a way to remain alive to God precisely in the midst of our pain and suffering. Jesus said in this world we would have trouble, but that we could take heart, that he has overcome the world. That doesn't mean every circumstance is gonna turn around to a yippee skippy solution look around us that's just not real but what it does mean for us and can mean is that there is a way to anchor our souls in the living God the unchanging presence of God with us for us and around us staying alert as Naomi did to the changing circumstances and how God's invisible hand may yet be working to bring restoration or justice and yes even blessing not preventing the hard things but giving us a way of enduring and seeing the other side. So let's summarize, what can we learn from Naomi's story? One, when all feels lost, it's okay to verbalize those feelings. And it's vital that rather than isolating, we return to community. We pick up the phone, we send that text, we show up at our small group when we don't really want to. We return to God's people and God's places. We might come back to a church gathering. We can also learn to stay open to changing circumstances and be willing to make bold moves for your own life and for your loved ones, especially next generation. I have one last observation of something I think we can learn from this book and Naomi's story recorded within the book of Ruth. This narrative, those four small chapters, are marked by a tremendous, remarkable number of spoken blessings. Remember, there's only 86 chapters, like 86, or 86 verses, almost that many number of sentences in the whole entire book. And 13 of those are a blessing spoken over someone. Three of them were in that passage we just read. Did you see the bless, may you this, may you this, may you this? If you go in the whole book and mark off, and I did, every time someone is saying may you whatever, they're saying that with an understanding that there is a living God who is active and involved in our circumstances and it matters that we speak life over the people we interact with. 13 times in one book of only four chapters, 13 of those sentences are blessings. What if one of the most powerful things we could do in the life where circumstances are hard is to watch out again for the well-being of the next generation and use our words for blessing. Be willing to make those hard, bold moves. We and our family, we've been exploring this, like how do you speak words of blessing over people? And I think it's a bit of a lost art and we're trying to learn. And this book shows you some examples of how you can say to somebody, may you this, may you that, may, you know, the, the, the famous example of this in, the, in um, the book of Numbers is the Hebraic blessing, the Aaronic blessing that God instructed and is a big part of, of life in the Jewish community. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you, which is what we all need when we're in pain. We want a solution to our pain, but what we most need is to remember that God's face is towards us, that he is glad to be with us. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Friends, we can use our words to bring God's presence into someone else's life Perhaps somebody who can't feel that right now or sense God in their circumstances. It feels awkward at first, but we're learning it, learning to speak life over people. May you, whatever it is. And it it feels a little like the first few times I was trying to do this, I feel like I'm speaking like Swahili or something, like la la la, may you, like it just doesn't roll off the tongue at first, but we can grow in this. May you experience joy. Like, you could turn to the, here, do this for fun, right? We'll be quick. We're almost done. Turn to the person next to you and say, may you experience joy. Right? Does it feel weird? All right. Now turn to them and say, may you experience hope in this next season. This one might be harder, but I've got high faith in you. May you encounter God in the darkest and scariest places. How did that bring laughter? All right, that's good. These are the things we can say. May you have courage to move boldly into whatever comes next. May you radiate, and these are now my words I wanna speak over you. May you radiate the love of God into this community, into kitchens and classrooms, into boardrooms and banks, into grocery stores and gas stations. May you bring dignity and grace into human suffering including your own. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine towards you and be gracious to you. May you like Naomi come to trust God's goodness and involvement in human affairs, including your own, even when you don't hear specific guidance and especially when circumstances are hard. May you discover that your soul can be well, even in great hardship. Godspeed.